sermon series called Failing Forward, the premise of which is pretty simple. We're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to fail at times in life. And yet there is a way to fail forward, to, to move toward an objective, even in our failures. You see this all the time when you read through the scriptures. God uses very flawed, imperfect people like you and I to do incredible things, and when they get it wrong, and sometimes they get it comically wrong, God, in his grace, still moves the ball forward. He still teaches them and grows them and stretches them, and his purposes are still accomplished. This is very good news for us. We've been looking at uh, Moses in this series, and in this second to last message, I want to suggest that women fail forward too, not just men. And so we're going to look at the great-great-grandmother of Moses today. And each week we've been looking at a different type of failure. Today we're looking at the failure of identity, identity failure, not, not really understanding our value, our worth, and where we get that. That's the failure we're talking about today. We're going to be in the book of Genesis, and we're looking at a woman named Leah primarily and her husband Jacob. I will read that for you. We're going to be uh, in Genesis 29, 15 through 35. 15 through 35. Laban said to him, to a man named Jacob, just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? The background is that Jacob has lived a life of manipulation and deception, and now he's on the run. Does that sound familiar? Moses had a, had a similar issue where he's on the run, and he runs into a man who he's loosely related to. They come from the same region, and Laban is now putting him to work. Tell me what your wages should be, Laban says to Jacob. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The older daughter is Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes. Some of your translations will say gentle eyes or fragile eyes. What does that mean? Leah had weak eyes. But Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Here's a little tip when you're, when you're reading scripture and you run into an idiom, a saying, in the original language that doesn't translate so perfectly into English, like it's raining cats and dogs. If, if someone translated that into another culture, they would really not know what that meant. We know that means it's raining a lot. If you don't know what it means, look at the context. If it were to say, Leah had weak eyes and Rachel had 20-20 vision, that would mean that, that weak eyes means a commentary on her, her actual vision, but it doesn't say that. It says Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel's a knockout. She's really good looking, which is to suggest that, that Leah is not an attractive person. Maybe she was cross-eyed, maybe she had a deformity, but the Hebrew idiom here is saying she's not physically beautiful like her sister, Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Verse 18, Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. He's love struck. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him. This dude is in love. 21, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. Well, that's, that's very forward, right? Um, verse 22, so Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. 
Now, in Semitic cultures at this time and place in, the, in world history, a wedding feast ended with the consummation of the marriage. If you've seen Dances with Wolves, that awkward teepee scene, that, similar, right? Now, there's no electricity here, so it's dark. People have been drinking. So what is about to happen? So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah, that's the older one, Leah had weak eyes, remember what that means, and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her instead. He tricked him. Interesting. And Laban gave his servant Zilpha to his daughter as her attendant, that's customary. Verse 25, when morning came, there was Leah. What a surprising, surprising little turn of events. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, it's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And you thought you had issues with your father-in-law, right? And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to be his daughter, Rachel's attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. Side note, some of you who are skeptical about the Bible say, again, with the repressive, regressive Bible, Look at it's endorsing polygamy. If you, if you think that, you really aren't trained to know how to read a, a biblical narrative. This is a critique on polygamy and multiple wives and, and the cultural norms of this world. Everyone's miserable. Do you notice that? So, so don't think that this is upholding polygamy as a good idea, like you should have multiple wives or multiple husbands. It's saying this is what happens when human beings do what they want to do on their own. Things fall apart, and they don't listen to... God. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. Ouch, that hurts Leah, I'm sure. And he worked for Laban for another seven years. Let's keep going. Verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben. For she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. In the ancient world, if you were a, a female, your ability to produce children, specifically sons, was vital. It was part of your identity because the more sons you have, the better the army, the more defense you have as a nation and as a family. And you don't have 401ks in retirement. You just have children that take care of you when you get feeble. And so if you can't produce sons, that's a problem. But she does. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to another son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So she named him Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth, to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord, so she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. This is God's word. 
You know, uh, Lauren Daigle has written this song that we sang earlier called You Say, and it has been number one on the charts for 62 weeks in a row, beating out the song Oceans. Remember that worship song? As the most popular Christian praise song of all time. What's fascinating about this song, though, is it's actually hitting the top charts in the secular market, too. If you listen to Cities 97 or you're in the mall, you will hear this song. And I remember the first time I was in the mall or somewhere and I heard this song on the radio, I thought, that is so unusual because typically non-Christian radio stations or department stores don't play Christian praise songs. And it occurred to me in that moment, oh, they think the lyrics of this song is about a romantic love. It's, it's essentially a song about a woman saying, I, I have all these negative voices in my head. I'm questioning myself. I don't know what to do. But then I remind myself what you think of me and what you say about me, and I'm, I'm all good. But we as Christians know that there's really only one voice that could be that weighty, right? You see, when you sing the song you say, and you're thinking about someone else, or even an inanimate thing like a career or something else, you're committing identity failure. You're building your identity on something that isn't strong enough foundationally to hold the weight of a human soul. So how do we define this identity failure? Identity failure could be defined this way. My identity is what I do and what others do to me. My identity is purely what I do, what I've accomplished, and what others do to me. That is really what is going on in the story of Leah here the great-great-grandmother of Moses, right? She's unattractive, and you feel for her. From the time she was a little girl, she probably noticed that people reacted differently to her sister Rachel than, than they would to her. They would say things. Rachel, you're so cute, you're so beautiful, but not to her. And that hurt. It's clear from the narrative that her father sees her as a problem. He's just trying to offload her. Laban has two objectives in life. One, to get a steady stream of labor at a very cheap cost. Enter Jacob. <laughs> and he manipulates Jacob into working for 14 years for him. And two, to figure out what to do with Leah, the unattractive girl. And Leah is just pawned off on Jacob. He doesn't want her. Laban doesn't want her. And she finds herself in a miserable marriage. Can you imagine a more miserable situation to be married to a man and you're beautiful younger sister whose shadow you've always been in is also married to the guy and he's infatuated with her but she thinks to herself I know how this game works in our culture if you have sons you're you're worth something and that's what she's trying to do right she's building her identity her sense of uh, well-being contentment self-worth value on her ability to produce sons, on maybe if she just works hard enough and does the right thing, her husband will love her. Some of us are really good at doing what Leah does. For years, I was. I remember when I was in the military. Um, I remember when the uniform changed to have Velcro, and it was almost comical from an identity point of view because in the military, all you want is to have the right rank. And I started out as a second lieutenant. It goes right here, little Velcro. And when you wash your uniform, you pull it off, the Velcro. And so you're reminded all the time, 
kind of what your rank is. It's not cool to be a second lieutenant, by the way, in the military. It's called a butter bar. You're too young to know anything, but you're given the responsibility of an officer, and so people your dad's age have to call you sir. They don't like it, and soon enough, you don't like it either. It's super awkward, so you just long to pull that off the Velcro and put on something else, and oh, now I'm a first lieutenant. Oh, this is much better. The bar turned black. It's not gold. People treat me with some dignity and respect, all right? But I really wish I had those railroad tracks. I really wish I could be a captain. And so you work, and you, and you perform, and you write officer evaluation forms, and then the day they pin the captain bars on. But you see, it doesn't stop, because then there's another rank called major, and then lieutenant colonel, and then full brig colonel, and then one-star general, and two-star general, and three-star general, and four-star general. But then you could maybe become the Secretary of Defense, and it never really stops, does it? Now, as a chaplain, what was so interesting is I saw people fight so hard in the military to change their Velcro little piece of identity. For example, you have a, a flag on your shoulder that looks like this, but when you go to combat, you switch it with a combat flag, combat patch. Then your unit goes right there. And I saw guys take foolish risks and volunteer for dangerous things just to get this. And the funny thing is, every time you would get the patch that you wanted, there was kind of a letdown. Where it was like, I thought that would feel better. Or I thought the joy would last longer. I was building, for many years, my identity on what I could do and what others would do for me, what they thought of me. The irony, of course, as a chaplain, is I do have one symbol it's a cross that never comes off, no matter what rank I go to. And of course, this is the only one that ever mattered. But there were even moments where I felt embarrassed of the cross. Sometimes chaplains aren't seen as very cool. We don't carry weapons. We're non-combatants. A lot of times people apologize to you for sins that they've committed just when you walk in the room. That's awkward, right? They'll say things like, oh, the chaplain's here. We've got to clean up our language, stuff like that. It made me feel like an outsider. And so the irony is I was trying to build my identity on certain things, and the one thing that mattered sometimes I didn't even remember. Maybe that's what Leah was doing, and maybe that's what you're doing. Here's kind of another way to say it. We all long to be seen, heard, and attached to someone or something great. Isn't that true? Think about your story. You, since the time you are a little boy or a little girl, have always wanted to be seen, even if you're an introvert, and to be attached to something. I remember my firstborn um, used to do this thing when I would carry him around when he was a little boy, and I would be kind of going about my business, and he would actually grab my chin and turn it towards me. It's like he just wanted me to notice him. I was holding him but I wasn't fully present. I was doing other things. And I think we never outgrow that, do we? Have you ever been in a conversation where it almost is comical because you're, you're trying to say things, but right at the right time, someone else jumps in, and then, and then you try again? <laughs> and like by the third time that you get talked over, you just feel really small and awkward and embarrassed. And there's usually like one person in the group that kind of has observed the whole thing, and they're too embarrassed to say anything about it, and it's just like, I guess I won't say anything. We hate that, right? 
Why is it that when you post something on social media and it gets way more likes, maybe even some loves, than you thought? Do you feel this surge of, wow, that's kind of cool? Because you long to be seen and heard. That doesn't mean you're flashy or narcissistic. It means there's something deep inside of you that wants to be noticed for the right reasons, wants to be validated. And in Leah, ever since she was a little girl, she was the ugly girl. She was the girl nobody wanted. And she just so wanted to be seen and heard and attached. But no one really wanted to see her. No one really heard her. No one was really attached. She probably would have been 12 years old by the time marital discussions were coming along. But as we see in the story, Laban had a hard time finding someone to marry her, so she probably would have been somewhere around 20, 21, when she was married off, much later in the fertility cycle, in the life expectancy of the ancient world. And so it really is kind of miraculous that she bears all these sons when her younger sister, Rachel, who's beautiful and adored by Jacob, is not bearing children. But what's fascinating about this story is if you know Hebrew, the language that this is written in, there's some real big clues as to why she feels so strongly that she wants to be seen and heard and attached. Genesis 29:32 that we read says this, Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also. I don't think that's the right one. Um, there we are. Um, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. This is her first son. She named him Reuben. You thought that was a sandwich. But in Hebrew, Reuben actually means I'm seen. Or, with a slight prefix modification, you can ask it in the form of a question, am I seen? And what's fascinating is she names him I'm seen because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Now, here's, here's something radical. At this point in the story of the people of God, the one true God was, was new to people. There was lots of make-believe gods. And the common word in Hebrew for God in general was Elohim, the great one. But that's not the word that she says when she says that the Lord has seen or has heard me. That is the word Yahweh. It's a personal God. It's the God that revealed himself to Abraham. So she has this rudimentary understanding of the claim that there's one God, only one God, and that he loves her, and it's Yahweh. It's not God in general. It's God with a specific name. And she says, clearly, since I've had a son here, the Lord must have sympathy on me, must notice my pain. But she doesn't stop there. That's not a hard stop. There's no consolation in that for her, really. She uses that and then pivots very quickly to say, and because I have a son, now maybe my husband will love me. Yeah, yeah, it's good. I know God loves me. That's great. Thank you. But what I really want is something that no one's ever given me. I want to be seen. So I'm going to name this boy Reuben. 
yeah, I'm seen by God, but I hope I can now be noticed by my husband. And that doesn't happen, does it? But she has another son. Verse 33, she conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, heard that I'm not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon, which means unheard. God sees me. God hears me. And now maybe because I've given two boys to this man in a culture that really puts a lot of importance on that, maybe he'll see me. Maybe he'll hear me. But he doesn't. Maybe you've been there. You have tried everything to be seen, to be heard in your career field, in your struggling marriage, with regard to your parents, in whatever pursuit matters most to you, but you don't feel seen, you don't feel heard, and you come to church and you hear preachers say things like, God sees you and God hears you, and you think, great. Maybe God could just give me something that would help me be seen and heard by somebody who really matters. That's kind of what we think deep down, right? That's where Leah is at, and this is identity failure. She's building her sense of worth and value on something that that won't hold the weight of a human soul, of an eternal being. She's putting all her hopes and dreams in a very flawed man named Jacob. And that will overpromise and underdeliver every time. But it goes on. She has a third son, Genesis 29, 34. Again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me. Attached to me, because I have borne him three sons, so she named him Levi, which means I'm attached. This is her Hail Mary. She's going for it. She wants more than anything, not just to be seen and heard, but to be attached. Some of you have been seen and heard, but you have not been attached. And that is the worst thing possible, right? Because that is the definition of rejection, for someone to truly look at you, to truly hear you, and say, you've been weighed, you've been measured, I see you to the bottom, and I reject you. I do not want to be attached to you. This is why divorce is so incredibly painful. And why, if you've gone through that, our heart just breaks for you here at Mercy Road. To be known, to be looked at, to be heard, but not to be attached. That hurts so much. It's like an amputation. And that's really what Leah is going through here. I've done everything I could as a woman in the ancient world. And my husband wants nothing to do with me. And every day, I have to look at his face light up when Rachel walks in the room. Pretty painful. Here's a warning, though, for all of you Leah's. And I, I, I hesitate to say it this way because it almost so, sounds mean to Leah and my heart goes out for this poor girl, but here's how it works. You go to bed with Rachel, but in the morning, it's always Leah. Did you notice that Jacob was tricked by his father-in-law Laban? He worked for seven years and it seemed like nothing to him so that he could marry this beautiful Rachel. And then in the chaos of a party without electricity at night, Laban tricks him and pawns off Leah. And once the marriage is consummated, it can't be undone in this culture. You can imagine his shock. 
when he wakes up after seven years of labor and goes, you're not Rachel. (laughs) What happened last night? That, I think, is a principle that if we don't learn as individuals, we're in for a lot of pain in life. C.S. Lewis put it very well when he said this, most people, if they have really learned to look into their own heart, would know that they do want, and they want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promises, do they? The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we have grasped at in the first moment of longing, which just fades away in reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, and chemistry may have been a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. You know what, you know what C.S. Lewis is talking about? You go to bed with Rachel, and in the morning, it's always Leah. You fix your heart on something, and you tell yourself, if I have this, only this, then I'm going to be so happy. I'm going to be so satisfied. Everything will be complete in my life. And when you get it, there's this letdown effect. It's kind of bewildering, right? And it, you know, you might think, well, C.S. Lewis, he lived before iPhones and anything really cool. So, of course, he was disappointed with life. I mean, I've got dual shower heads, man. I mean, like, we've, we've got, I don't, but, you know, we've got great stuff now. Well, how about Tom Brady? Maybe he's a better case study. In 2005, in a 60-minute interview, Steve Croft, a correspondent for 60 Minutes, spoke with the New England Patriots quarterback about his success on the field and off the field. What he said about being satisfied in life was kind of shocking. Brady. This is what Tom Brady had to say. There's times when I'm not the person that I want to be. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still there's something greater out there for me? I still think there's something greater for me. I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, it is what it is. You reached your goal, your dream. This is your life. Me? I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. And what else is there for me? Croft, the correspondent, asked Brady, so what is the answer? Brady looks away and looks down and says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Now, he's added a few Super Bowl rings since 2005. But you can Google interviews. His line has not changed. You may be really good at your job, but no one has put a statue of you in front of your workplace. When you go to work, people don't chant your name in hordes of thousands. Tom Brady is married to a supermodel, and he's arguably the best quarterback that's ever lived, and yet he admits that when he goes to bed with Rachel in the morning, it's always Leah. 
the rings aren't quite as shiny as they used to be. So, so get practical for a minute. What are you grasping onto right now? Is it a future vacation? You know the thing about vacations. Vacations are the best when you're thinking about how good the vacation is going to be, but then you get there, and you get that middle seat on the, on the airplane. And you're like, really, a middle seat? This can't be a good vacation if it starts out with a middle seat. Then you get that guy who should have bought a bigger seat. He's kind of half on your lap. And he wants to talk to you about his newfound faith as a Jehovah's Witness, right? And then you get to where you're going, and that Airbnb didn't quite look the same online. It looked a little better. And then you start thinking about how much it costs, and you, you start to get that panic mode on vacation. And if you're with kids, you're really in for it because everyone knows if they've been a parent, vacations with kids are not called vacations. They're called a trip, right? You're on a trip. And you start thinking, this is fun. We're going to have fun. Everyone's having fun. I'm having fun, and you're having fun, and it's great. Take a picture. <laughs> right? So maybe it's a future vacation. If you're putting your hopes on that, you're going to bed with Rachel, and in the morning it's going to be Aaliyah. If it's a job, you know how this works. One day you'll be retired, and no one will really remember what you did, even if you were Tom Brady. It won't matter. Your records will be broken. You're not going to be that big of a deal. What about that romantic relationship? I think one of the reasons that every year, for the last 15 years that I've been doing weddings, it seems to be that people are getting married later and later and later in life is because they're, they're suspicious of this principle. They, they know that, gosh, I've watched my parents get a divorce. I've seen all the misery of, like, people really not finding love, and so I better kick the tires and keep kicking the tires and keep kicking the tires because what if I go to bed with Rachel and in the morning it's Leah? I've seen what that looks like on other people, and I don't want it to be me, and so maybe if I just put off that leap, that commitment, maybe then I will, I will safeguard. Here's the deal. No matter who you marry, you're going to have this principle in effect because the human soul was never meant to receive its value, its worth, its complete satisfaction from another human. Augustine put it this way, the human heart is restless until it comes to find its rest in God. So how do you move from identity failure to identity freedom? Because that's really what we want, right? Identity freedom. Here are a few thoughts. Genesis 29, 35. She conceived again. And when Leah gave birth to a son, she said, this time, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. What's fascinating about Leah's story is after three swings and three strikes, something clicks in her. She realizes maybe my husband will never love me. Maybe he'll never really see me or hear me or want to be really attached to me. Maybe I'll always live in Rachel's shadow. Maybe I'll always be very low on his priority list. And maybe this gift of having children isn't meant to be a token that buys affection from my husband. Maybe I'm going to dedicate this child to the one purpose, the one thing that defines why I'm even here. So she names him Judah. Judah means I will praise the Lord. 
What's fascinating is that we can see things that she can't see. Leah's living in real time. But we can see that God, in his sovereignty, in his creativity, in his great generosity, looks at this girl that nobody wanted, who was unattractive physically, who was very insecure, and he says, I'm going to use you, Leah, to give birth to some pretty important people. Do you know that Moses comes from the line of Leah? Levi would be his ancestor, her son Levi. But even more beautiful, do you know that Jesus, the Messiah, the rescuer of humankind, God in the flesh, comes from the line of Judah. It's like God says, even if nobody sees you, nobody hears you, and nobody wants to be attached to you, I see you, Leah, I hear you, and I will do anything to be attached to you, and I want to give you the most important purpose that anybody has been given in human history. You are going to be a link in the chain of the rescue mission of the whole human race. You're going to be the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus, the Messiah. What kind of God does this? How do you move from identity failure to freedom? You cry out to the Lord in the midst of your identity struggles. That's what she's doing, don't you see? She keeps saying, Yahweh has seen me. At least Yahweh has heard me. Yahweh wants to be attached to me. And then it's like the more she talks out loud to God about her pain, about I just wish my husband would, would give me a hug, the more she talks to God about that, the closer and closer she gets to the life-changing moment where she goes, aha, it's been there the whole time. It's not the rank. It's not the combat patch. It's the cross. It's his love for me. It's a pretty logical position if you think about it. If there is a God who generated all of human reality, who made literally everything, who never had a beginning and never had an end, and he loves you, he knows you, he sees you and hears you, and he forgives your sin, and he wants to become attached to you eternally. That's a big deal, guys. We can rest in that in a way that Tom Brady cannot rest in 10 Super Bowl rings, 10 supermodel wives, although I wouldn't suggest that, Tom, because the Bible seems to point out that polygamy causes a lot of misery. We can rest in the love of God in a way that, that you fall into the most comfortable bed ever after a long, hard day. Are you going through it right now at work? Not measuring up? Do you kind of look at your life and think, gosh, I wish I, I kind of thought I'd be further now. I kind of thought it'd be a little more impressive. I, I kind of thought I'd accomplish more. You can rest in the knowledge that the creator of the heavens, earth, loves you. He knows your name. He sees you. He hears you. And he wants to be attached to you. He doesn't just love you. He likes you. When Leah discovered that, it changed everything for her. She started to play the part she was designed to play. A part that looked very small in her moment, but was actually much larger than she ever could have imagined. 
But I guess the final answer to this question, how do you move from identity failure to identity freedom, is you sing the truth loud enough and often enough. And you sing to the right person. Just listen to these lyrics. I keep fighting voices in my mind that say I'm not enough. Do you relate to that? Every single lie that tells me I'll never measure up. Am I more than just the sum of every high and every low? Remind me once again just who I am because I need to know. If you ask Jacob to remind you, it's not going to go well for you. If you ask me to remind you, I will. But I'm, I'm very flawed too. But if you ask God to remind you, that is the one person whose opinion actually matters. And this is what he will say. You say I am loved when I can't feel a thing. Any of you feel numb today? Let God tell you that you're loved. And I promise you that numbness will start to dissipate. You say I'm strong when I think I'm weak. Anybody feel weak today? Let the Lord of all creation tell you that he can impart strength to you. And you say I am held attached, you might say, when I am falling short. Any of you fall short this week? Consider that the God of the universe is holding you, even now. And when I don't belong, anybody feel like they don't belong? You say I am yours. If you belong to him, it does not matter if you don't belong to any human group. You say, I am yours, and I believe, and that's the key. Do you believe? Oh, I believe what you say of me. Taking all I have, and now I'm laying it at your feet. Some of us need to do that today. What are you going to lay at his feet? Well, she tells you. Thank you, Lauren Daigle. You have every failure, God, and you have every victory. That's what we're talking about in this series, handing our failures over to the hands of the Redeemer. The only thing that matters now is everything you think of me. In you, I find my worth. In you, I find my identity. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you. As we get close to wrapping this series up, we pray that you would continue to be with us in our failures and our victories. Lord, for those of us who went to bed with Rachel, and in the morning it was Leo, who experienced the letdown effect of a career or a romance or any number of things, who have tried to build our identity on anything less than you, would you forgive us and would you free us from that? Would you remind us afresh this morning as we close with this song what you say of us? In Jesus' name, amen.